Hello, everybody. Welcome to Macro Money. This is Ilya Spivak, head of Global Macro here at Tasty Live. And boy, do we have an action-packed week of all things macro. Strap in, folks. This is going to be very, very interesting this week. Uh, we'll start with a look at, of course, that which everyone is paying the most attention to, and that is uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell's semi-annual testimony in Congress this week. Uh, and we will move along and uh, actually talk about some overseas um, catalysts tonight. We have uh, a monetary uh, a monetary policy announcement from the RBA, uh, as well as some data out of China. Uh, we'll start, though, with Powell. So um, we'll begin with, with that which comes later and work our way backwards over the coming 24 hours. Uh, and here, of course, we have a speech. This is not a piece of data. There's not expectations for what that number or this or that decision within uh, a narrow range of outcomes might be. Rather, we have a um, a, a, a piece of, of content, as it were, that the markets might interpret this way or that. So I think what's useful here is to get our bearings for what are the moving parts? What is it that is within the realm of possibility for what Jay Powell might say? We begin with what started at the beginning of last month. And this is really the main story in markets. If you know nothing else about what's going on in financial markets right now, these next four or, or five charts will be all of it. That will be the most important thing and why this Powell speech is so important. U.S. economic data has vastly improved relative to baseline forecasts over the course of last month. You can see it right here. This is a Citigroup's economic surprise index. It measures how economic data performs relative to expectations, not in absolute terms, relative to what the markets think, relative to baseline projections of economists. And what we see here very clearly is that over the course of October, November, December, January, U.S. economic data either stalled or weakened somewhat relative to forecasts. What we see in February is very clearly a different, a different story. The upshot from that shift in U.S. economic data has been swelling rate hike expectations. You can see that while the data, again here, was flat to veering lower, what we saw on that orange line you see on your screen right now, the 12-month Fed funds future implied rate, so what rates futures imply will be the Fed funds rate 12 months forward from any given day, that was flat. Over that time, the markets thought, we know where the Fed is going, rates have stabilized here, we don't need to um, continue to worry about this. And very tellingly, you can see the OFR financial stress index, which measures uh, the degree to which the markets are hamstrung or, or um, otherwise uh, worried about 
tightening of financial conditions, you can see that index having been rising with Fed rate hike expectations for the better part of a year and a half turned meaningfully lower. You can see now, as those rate hike odds have started to build, it stopped falling. If we look at what the implications are for markets, we can see that index, that financial stress index, moves very cleanly uh, in the inverse of the S&P 500, which is essentially our baseline measure for market confidence. S&P 500, if you think about it sort of uh, in big narrative terms, is 500 giant multinational companies companies that do business across the whole world. So what is the price of the S&P 500? It is a reflection of where the earnings of those big multinationals are expected to go. And what are those earnings a function of? Global employment and consumption. The consumption a function of employment, the earnings a function of consumption. So what we're looking at really is the collective wisdom of the market in saying these companies, these giant multinational companies in their aggregate, will see their earnings do better or worse. And what we're seeing here is when financial stress rises, not surprisingly, the expectations for those earnings deteriorate. And so, really, everything that we've been seeing in markets for the better part now of two years has been this story. And since the beginning of last month, you can very clearly see the S&P stopped being able to rise just as this financial stress index stopped falling because the markets ostensibly are once again concerned. Here is what we've seen since the last FOMC uh, policy announcement as a consequence. So we have better U.S. economic data through February, and very conveniently, the last FOMC announcement was on February the 1st. We can see from the large dashed line up to the solid line, there has been a very significant upshift in policy expectations, we are now looking to top out at about 5.5%. That's six months from now. So call it September. We also are looking at rates well north of 5% and rate cut expectations significantly fading by a year from now. So we're at 519, which essentially is just one rate cut away from the peak. And so the market's still seemingly entertaining this idea that somewhere, perhaps in December or January, we could have a cut. We could come down from five and a half to about five and a quarter. But as you can see, the path of travel here, since the last time that the Fed signaled anything here um, formally has been higher. We can also see the little dashed line there, which hopefully you guys can see because it's so attached to the solid one, is where we were a week ago. So if this is the abiding narrative, and this is what 
is driving everything because the S&P 500 is our catch-all for essentially overall market mood. And clearly, the overall market mood is not doing well against the backdrop of these rising Fed rate hike expectations. One might have expected a little bit of a move inward. Not the case. Over the past week or so, the markets have bounced, ostensibly uh, hoping that maybe the Fed is now near some kind of a peak that's been already baked in, but the yield curve hasn't shifted much. So if this is the story that we're looking at, and if the markets are generally animated by the outlook getting more hawkish versus less hawkish, well, we've had a rally over the past week. Stocks did generally better last week than they had uh, in the preceding few. But the outlook hasn't really changed. And so we're still looking at something much more hawkish than we did from the last time that the Fed gave us formal communication. At the same time, we see that inflation expectations have moved significantly higher. And what we're looking at is now a two-year break-even rate well north of 3%. That's the highest in almost 10 months. We also see that U.S. measures of inflation, CPI, PCE, run with about a two-month lag behind these expectations. And we can see this has been going on uh, at least since um, the latter part of 2019, the earlier um, part of 2020. This, of course, makes sense. First of all, markets are forward-looking in their um, very nature. And so they anticipate moves in CPI, looking at various input indications, and PCE, of course, as well, inflation overall. Uh, but also, there's a lag between when the CPI data is collected, compiled, released. So it's not surprising that there's uh, about a two-month lag, nor is it surprising that the markets are able to anticipate things with a bit of a lead. So with that in mind, it seems like we're gearing up for inflation to heat back up. Perhaps not all the way back to the highs, but heat back up nevertheless. Nevertheless, and this is something that the Fed almost certainly sees. So the range of options for this Powell speech might well come down quite narrowly to a situation where the U.S. labor market has not fallen off. U.S. economic data is doing better than expected. Inflation, as a consequence, is going higher. The Fed's job, at the face of it, is plainly not done. And so the message, likely, is going to sound much like the message we've heard before, which is the Fed is going to continue to do this until they feel like a 2% inflation target is achievable and we're on a path there in the medium term. Doesn't seem like we're on a path there now. And so... The likelihood that the tone of what is said is interpreted by the markets as relatively hawkish seems higher than the alternative. And with that in mind, we face significant risk.
to stocks, significant risks to those things that do worse when interest rates are rising. And of course, top of this list are things that don't yield anything. So your precious metals, your crypto. And of course, the things that stand to do well here, the US dollar and yields. Next, shifting gears and moving to what will lead up to this, um, this testimony, we have a monetary policy announcement from Australia. And here, the expectation is that we're going to see a, um, a rise to uh, 3.6 on the headline cash rate from 3 and, um, and 3.5 uh, tenths. It's a little bit of an interesting thing here for Australia. They don't uh, move in clean uh, quarter point increments at the headline number uh, b b uh, because they did a bit of experimenting with smaller than 25 basis point moves uh, amid, um, amid COVID. But here is the bottom line for what we're seeing. The expectation for today's announcement. You can see here we have... 76% of a hike baked in. So about 19 basis points, if you look at the implied rate delta column there. So we're not fully baked in for this hike, but we're a good way of the way there, if you will. So there shouldn't be a meaningful surprise here. The larger issue is likely to be what is going to happen next. How much further are we going to go? And at this point, it looks like we're fully baked in to reach three rate hikes over the course of this year. So you can see uh, in that number of rate hikes or cuts, at the very bottom there, the December 5th, you can see it says three. So it looks like we're going to end the year essentially 75 basis points higher than we are currently. There's a bit of a sense that maybe we'll get uh, a little bit more, but as we see here, the likelihood of anything beyond three peaks out at 22% sometime in October, November, and then begins to fade again. So the thing that we would need to see here is guidance from the RBA perhaps suggesting it might be less or it might be more. Let's look at what the inputs there look like. So we can see that even just over the course of the past week, the yield curve has shifted inward. So something about this has the markets a little bit spooked. We can see the path has become shallower especially over the course of the next year. The one-month trajectory, about the same, but it looks like we are going to get to that four-and-a-quarter rate a little bit slower, and the pathway there will be less aggressive than what was uh, anticipated recently. Now, nevertheless, we are facing a more hawkish policy curve, that's the solid line, than we did at the last RBA announcement at the beginning of February. So a bit of a mixed message here, but the market seemingly grasping on to a degree of 
weakness, perhaps something uh, a little bit softer, uh, a, a little a bit less hawkish uh, in the RBA's uh, likely posturing here. From the growth perspective, we actually see a narrow return into positive territory. So uh, the latest PMI numbers here uh, coming out of contraction, most uh, tellingly for services and the uh, composite index back above that 50 line, which denotes the difference between contraction and expansion in the relevant uh, sectors or the composite, which takes them both in aggregate. So we can see here, manufacturing narrowly growing so above 50 services narrowly growing so above 50 the composite now narrowly growing after four months of contraction this is not the world's most robust uh, picture obviously we're just at that 50 line not really meaningfully extending upward but growth seems to be generally on a better footing now than it was a couple months back for Australia. Nevertheless, baseline economic data continues to underperform on the downside. So over the course of February, that situation only got more acute. And incoming economic data suggests maybe the situation has legs to continue to deteriorate, at least in relative terms, that essentially analysts' expectations for what the Australian economy ought to be doing have been rosier than realized results. And that tells you perhaps some of the story for how this policy curve has moved inward over the past week. Perhaps the markets are getting a little bit more uh, dovish in their expectations because of data like this. And so the upshot is that maybe what we're looking for here is an RBA that's a little bit uh, less committed to aggressive tightening. Some of the logic for that might come from the housing market, uh, something that we've watched very closely because housing is such a commanding component of Australian CPI, over a third of the overall basket, is that there appears to be about a five-quarter lag in between quarterly CPI numbers, these are the official ones in Australia. There are monthly ones that got introduced recently, but um, those are not the ones that the RBA uses in policymaking, not formally anyway. So looking at this, we have about a five-quarter lag in between the average cost of housing. We've constructed an index here um, looking at Sydney and Melbourne, the two biggest population centers, there's about a five-quarter lag here between the developments in those housing costs and overall CPI, which would suggest we may have topped on CPI in Australia already because housing costs have so aggressively moved lower. And so maybe the RBA has a bit of room here. Maybe in the face of a Fed that's pushing on clearly uh, with aggressive tightening uh, and will not leave the rest of the world uh, untouched. We've uh, talked at length before about this idea that uh, when the Fed tightens because of the ubiquity of the U.S. dollar in global commerce, 
what you're doing is you're raising the cost of borrowing the global medium of exchange. And so in practice, what you're doing is you're raising borrowing costs everywhere. So perhaps the RBA feels like they can let the Fed do a bit of heavy lifting here and back off a bit, given the uh, likely way forward here. And so as we consider this, maybe that sets us up for an RBA that's a bit softer in, um, in its language, and perhaps that gives us uh, a sense for um, the, uh, the Australian dollar. The most potent indicator, though, and possibly the most likely outcome here, is that the RBA does not want to even rhetorically let inflation perk back up. And so at least the language will remain fairly firm. If the Aussie then fails to rally on that kind of language, we would have a telltale sign that the focus really is the Fed, which has been the story for the Australian dollar and for RBA policy announcements for quite a while. And that, in turn, would tell us just how concerned markets are about what Jay Powell will say. And so it isn't just that we're looking at an RBA policy announcement. It is that, as we've talked about before, the Australian dollar really subsumes everything in the current risk environment. The reopening in China, which we'll touch on in just a second, the uh, overall risk sentiment landscape with uh, regard to the Fed, and of course, domestic dynamics, which are those of a very cyclically sensitive commodities exporting economy, where the effects of a global downturn as a consequence of all of this tightening might show up first. So all of this, all of the various elements of the current macro stew all of them show up in the Australian dollar exchange rate. And if the RBA doesn't appear to be getting more defensive, but the Aussie can't rally on that, that would be very telling. As promised, let's shift gears to China. Here we have some interesting indications of reopening. These, this is going to be the February trade set of numbers. We're going to get the trade balance uh, narrowing here um, a little bit. The surplus expected to come in uh, at about $82.5 billion uh, USD, uh, down from uh, about $109 billion. Uh, and you can see in the, um, in the makeup here, imports are seen falling less than exports which would be a story about internal demand picking up, whereas external demand is anemic. And this would be a story about all kinds of tightening, slowing growth or attempting to slow growth outside of China as Chinese demand rebounds amid reopening from COVID lockdowns in December. That seems to be the story that is being um, that is being uh, shown here, just in terms of the expectations. Now, unlike Australia, Chinese economic data has increasingly performed better than expected, 
thanks to that economic reopening after COVID. And looking at the most recent PMI numbers, which we got last week, we can see why. The official numbers, uh, this is uh, from um, a Chinese uh, government uh, statistical entity, the uh, the official logistics uh, and, um, and uh, producer agency. What we see here is um, a very significant uptick in manufacturing, in services, the composite index, very brisk growth indeed. Um, looking at the composite, the fastest uh, we've seen in quite some time. Herein is that sign of catch-up that we've been waiting to see from China, attempting to essentially make up for lost ground during the lockdowns. If we look at not official data, which um, there can be sometimes uh, some concern about that data being rosier than uh, perhaps reality uh, suggests, I certainly don't know that to be the, the, the case, and I've long since argued that it doesn't really matter, that the data is giving us a policy signal one way or another. Either officials are pointedly trying to give us data that says a thing, or the economy actually says the thing that the, the data says. Either way, we're getting a policy signal, and ultimately that's what matters. But all of that aside, here is a private sector Chinese PMI set. This is from S&P Global and Kaishin. And here you're seeing, again, a brisk pickup. Not quite as dramatic as, as, as what we're seeing here, but nevertheless, recovery is gaining steam. What's not, though, is the conviction of investors. What we can see here, uh, marked clearly, is December, which is when the reopening began. And the curve here is a 20-day moving average of total turnover on the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect. This is a setup that allows investors with access to Hong Kong to trade directly in Shanghai. So it's an outlet for global investors to trade on the mainland, and also for investors with access to Shanghai to trade directly in Hong Kong. So it's an outlet for domestic investors in China, mainland investors, to send capital abroad. What we see here, clearly, is that not only have these volumes not improved with economic reopening, they've actually declined. And so what's particularly interesting here is one would expect the opposite. One would expect that with reopening, there would be some pent-up mainland demand that would come out and juice these volumes. One would also expect that there is external demand that would come in to take advantage of China's ostensibly growing economic vigor, which we see in the PMI numbers, which we see in the surprise um, index, uh, that come with the end of zero COVID. Well, doesn't look like it. And very tellingly, the peaks in this volume um, a chart here occur just as the Fed begins to announce its intent to tighten significantly in the middle of 2021 and then actually starts to make good on that 
the threat uh, come the following year. So it seems still that the focus primarily for investors is if the Fed is going to make the cost of borrowing more expensive, how confident am I to allocate money to something relatively risky? Well, clearly not that confident because we are not seeing this pickup. Part of the story may well be what the consequences of the pickup could be for the Fed and for inflation. And here we look at a chart of the Bloomberg Commodity Price Index. That's uh, the dark line there, as well as, once again, CPI and PCE in the U.S. And recall that China is the largest importer of most commodities. And, of course, it's trade data that we're looking at here. If what we're going to see is robust import growth, or at least imports that meaningfully outstrip what's happening on the export side, which is exactly what the expectations are suggesting, the story here might well be the structural decline in commodities that has occurred over much of the past six, eight months against the backdrop of China being effectively locked down, a decline that has meaningfully tracked the pullback in inflation and ostensibly contributed thereto, that's over. Because this robust demand from China, as it reopens, is going to suck up all of these commodities again and drive up costs, which will drive up inflation and may already be driving up inflation. We just saw those break-even rates at the top of the show at the highest in almost a year. And that this will then encourage the Fed to go higher for longer, which, as we see, is not a good thing for markets, at least so far, but actually quite the opposite. So what we're setting up and looking at with all of this data is perhaps, first, a sense from China, a sense from Australia, that what the markets really care about is ultimately how all of that ends up as Fed policy expectations. And if there isn't a positive response to signs of Chinese reopening, giving some economic lift to conditions there, if we don't see a positive response to an RBA that perhaps does not blink in the face uh, of, uh, of shifting expectations, well, then we know that the focal point remains the Fed, and that remains the lens through which everything is seen. And then we look at a Powell speech that perhaps isn't going to give us anything more dovish, certainly, but could take a page in the other direction given where inflation is going, even as labor markets remain firm. All of which adds up to risk aversion, weaker stocks, weaker gold, Weaker crypto, likely, and a stronger U.S. dollar. And that is macro money for today. Thank you very much for joining me. If you want to uh, follow along outside of this show, um, which happens every um, every day, Monday through Thursday, right after overtime with our friend Chris Vecchio, head of futures at Forex here at Tasty Live. You can follow me on Twitter at Ilya Spivak. That's where 
I opine outside of these hours. Uh, we will, of course, see you for the show tomorrow. Thank you very much. Once again, happy uh, trading out there. Good luck. Take care. The content of this podcast is created, produced, and provided solely by Tasty Life Inc. and does not represent the direct views or opinions of any of its affiliated companies. This content is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be trading or investment advice or a recommendation that any security, futures contract, digital asset, other product, transaction, or investment strategy is suitable for any person. Trading securities, futures products, and digital assets involve risk and may result in a loss greater than the original amount invested. Tasty Live Inc., through its content, financial programming, or otherwise, does not provide investment or financial advice or make investment recommendations. The information provided may not be appropriate for all investors and is provided without respect to individual investor financial sophistication, financial situation, investing time horizon, or risk tolerance. Tasty Live Inc. is not a licensed financial advisor, registered investment advisor, or registered broker-dealer.